Hi, welcome to Waterstone Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you've tuned in to join us today to study God's Word. Here at Waterstone, we exist to help people become like Jesus and live for others. What this means practically is that we gather together as one body to seek God's heart for justice, to serve together, and to connect with one another as the body of Christ. We hope that you'll join us for one of our weekend services soon. We gather on Saturday nights at 5 p.m. and on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We look forward to meeting you in person, and we hope that you enjoy today's sermon. A reading from Luke 13, 1 to 9. Now there were, many, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you... No, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it be using up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. The word of the Lord. This morning, I invite you to multitask, to let your mind wander at certain times, and pray about two specific things. One is we have uh, nine of our senior high students and two of our staff up in the mountains on a retreat with hundreds of other kids from other churches. We remember that revival starts with the young. So pray for these nine students up on a retreat and the two staff. (laughs) (laughs) And then our elders, we've talked about this. We want to keep the world in our sights, the global places, and I want to specifically invite you to keep praying for Israel and Gaza. Uh, Keep praying for the hostages to be found and rescued, the grieving families, but also the innocent civilians, not only those and their families that have been killed, but also for just the continuing escalation of violence. Pray that Israel would not become a monster to defeat a monster. Pray for God's peace, or at least a ceasefire in the region. So pray for Israel, the peace of Jerusalem, and Gaza. I want to begin with a poem this morning. Poets exist to help us feel truth. This is by X.J. Kennedy, a Boston poet, and the title, listen, September 12th, 2001. Two caught on film who hurtle from the 82nd floor, choosing between a fireball and to jump, holding hands. Aren't us. I wake beside you, stretch, scratch, taste the air, the incredible joy of coffee and the morning light. Alive, we open our eyelids on our pitiful share of time. 
wee bubbles rising and bursting in a boiling pot. We're in a preaching series called Controversial, Understanding the Hard Sayings of Jesus. And we want to keep the reason we're preaching these texts in front of us. We have a purpose statement, and we'll continue to show it to remind us why we're going to these places, to explain and apply several of Jesus' hard sayings so that we know Him even more and choose to follow Him even more or not. Now, today's saying is one that you seldom, preach, seldom hear preached in a church. And the reason is not particularly because it's a hard saying. We actually understand what Jesus is saying pretty clearly. But why this would be in the category of controversial is because of the timing of the saying. And what Jesus says at the wrong time really makes him look cold, calculated. Like, maybe it's true, Jesus, but it's certainly not the right time for you to be saying this. So what is Jesus doing in this text? And in particular, how is Jesus with us in tragedy? So let's go into the text. We'll take a quick walk through, and then we'll come back around, and I really want to focus on three words that Jesus says. The word no, the word repent, and the word perish. To understand those is to understand Jesus' timing and what he's trying to do. So, Jesus is speaking in Luke 13 to the crowds, if you look at verse 1. And while he's speaking, some people come running up to him to ask about a particular act of terrorism that's been in the news. What had happened was that the Roman territorial governor, Pontius Pilate, a name we've heard and Jesus will soon experience face-to-face in, in Jerusalem. He um, was known for this. Josephus tells us that he d- did this sort of thing at least three or four other times. He sent a group of henchmen, assassins, to take out political rivals during Passover when people were offering sacrifices. It was the only time when lay people could bring their offerings into the temple grounds. And he took these out, shed their blood, and the way, the graphic description you see it here, Pilate had mixed, uh, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That was a common occurrence then, and aren't we sad again this week to say it's a common occurrence now. Jesus, what do you have to say about this? Verse 2. Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I have to say, I didn't see that question coming. We might have expected Jesus to curse Pontius Pilate, to rail against Roman occupation, to rally the Galileans in revolt against the loss of freedom that they keep experiencing under Pilate. No, instead we get a moment of public theology. We get Jesus, as he often did, answering an inquiry with an inquiry. And notice, he, he kind of says that we're looking at the wrong headline. He says the headline here is not that these Galileans were assassinated. The real headline here is that all Galileans are going to die. How does that feel? 
Then notice verse 3. If he'd have stopped maybe after no, it would have been okay. But he goes on, unless you repent, you too will perish. How are you feeling about Jesus right now? Well, he doesn't really care how you're feeling at the moment. He goes on. In verse 4, he brings a headline into public theology. He references a known event that happened in the southeast corner of the wall around Jerusalem. There was a tower overlooking an aqueduct, again, a construction project of Pilate, and it collapsed. We don't know if they were construction workers killed or innocent bystanders, but 18 people were killed in a tragic accident. And what's Jesus going to say about that? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Again, he goes to this place of public theology and is thinking when he says, no, I tell you, it's like, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that. God's not up in heaven saying, well, if you do these three sins, you get these three acts of suffering. If you do these five things, you'll get a tower to fall on you. God does not play games like that. How do we know? Because we know that just one sin separates us from God, and we deserve death and separation from Him. One sin. It's a theological phrase called total depravity. And I know that when we hear that, we don't like that, but that's often because we don't really understand what it means. What the idea of total depravity means is not that we're as bad as we can be. Total depravity means because of one sin, we are as bad off as we can be, separated by our sin, from a holy God. And so Jesus said the headline here is not that a tower fell in Jerusalem and killed 18 people. The headline here is that every person deserves to have a tower fall on them. Jesus says, no, I tell you, and unless you repent, you will perish. Now, what I want to go back through now, by the way, how are you feeling about Jesus right now? It reminded me of a story that I read, these feelings, if I was in the crowd then, and he's talking about tragedy this way. It was by Will Williman, who for a long time was the dean of the chapel at Duke University. And he wrote about attending a funeral in the rural south, and uh, it was the kind of funeral that you could expect in certain churches in the rural south. There's an open casket, and the preacher got up and he preached to the dead corpse, and he preached to the congregation, and he even had words for Jesus Christ himself. And at one point, he turned in the sermon during a funeral, and he pointed to the body and he said, it's too late for old Joe. There's no more dinners for him with his family. There's no more time for him to turn his life around. It's too late for old Joe, but it's not too late for you. And, you know, people squirming a little bit, that would be awkward unless you repent, you know, kind of feel. But he didn't stop there. The pastor went on to say 
That one time he was actually in a funeral procession. They were leaving the place where the service was and they were going to the cemetery. And on the way to the cemetery, a Greyhound bus lost control and smashed into three cars in the funeral procession, killing three people. And then the pastor says, if you don't repent, that could happen to you. I mean, if you, if you don't, you could leave here and that could happen to you. You need to repent. That's what we're feeling about Jesus right now. Let's go back and look at these three words. No, repent, and perish. Jesus says no. The real headline here is not how these people were killed, whether they were assassinated by an evil man or whether it was an innocent accident of a construction project. The, he's saying, and he's taking this to a public theological moment because he wants to push back on his culture a bit. It, it, it's not the headline because it's not true. God doesn't deal with our sins and sinners that way, where if you do this, you get that. He doesn't. Now, there's places where if we make, because of a moral fabric in the universe, if we make wrong decisions, there will be consequences. If you smoke, you could have a propensity to lung cancer. If you drink, you could kill your liver. I mean, there's certain things we choose to do that will have consequences. But by and large, those things about people having a tower fall on them, it's not because there's something sinful in their life. But in Jesus' day, that was a common thought. His pastors, the Pharisees, believed that strongly. And it was uh, since the days of Job, one of the earliest books ever written in the First Testament. It was believed, you remember, Job lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost his health. He does the right thing. He looks above the falling tower and says, God, what's going on? What are you doing? And God did not have an issue with that. God was not angry at Job at the end. And he never explained it to Job, but he does explode. And you knew who God explodes at? Not Job, but his three friends who did not take our Stephen Minister training here at Waterstone. And they come to Job and say, look, Job, we're living pretty moral and righteous lives here, and none of this stuff's happening to us. It's happening to you. What don't we know? What's going on? There's got to be something under the surface of your life for these kinds of things to be happening to you. And Jesus says, no, no. That's not why tragedies happen. That's not how God deals with our sins. Now we pause here to say, well, that was very early, ancient, you know, naive. We don't think that way today, do we? I was uh, taking an hour to find something to watch the other night on Hulu. <laughs> and I, I saw it, I didn't watch it. I don't really like it, but I saw it. It's back on Hulu. The Sound of Music. <laughs> it made me remember when Christopher Plummer died a few years back. It came out that he actually hated that movie. He was one of the leads. He called it The Sound of Mucus. <laughs> and he hated it because of what he called the trash poetry. Hey, he said it, I'm sorry, don't email me on that. You look at the songs in The Sound of Music and you hear the Pharisees of the first century. Here's one example, trash poetry. What happens is Christopher Plummer's character falls in love with Julie Andrews' character and the only thing they know how to do is sing. And they sing to each other for here you are 
standing there loving me whether or not you should. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. This is really trash poetry, but (laughs) nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. What's happening there? It's flipped, right? We may not want to go to the place where we say, well, if bad things are happening in your life, it's because you're a bad person. But we're pretty quick to go, well, if good things are happening in your life, you must be a good person. If my kids are turning out well, oh, man, yeah, I'm a really smart parent. If my job is on a 45-degree rise and things are smooth, man, it's because I am an exceptionally hardworking and skilled employee. If life is going good, I must be doing great. We can't help but take the credit. We lose sight of nothing comes from nothing. It could never be grace. It's got to be me. And I wouldn't be too quick to leave the other side of that because I often do think that when we are in places where towers are falling on us, you know, a relationship breaks, our health gives, financial stress, all those towers that can fall in our life, we are quick sometimes to say, God, what am I? Is it me? Is it me? Jesus says, no. It's not you. Well, what is it then? Jesus saying no twice pushes us, I think, to the the larger story, the great arc of Scripture. We talk much about this at Waterstone. Here's reality. Here's what's going on in the world. God made the world and everything in it, and it was good. And we had face-to-face fellowship with Him. We went for walks in a garden every afternoon. Three miles an hour is life. God put us in the middle, over the creation, vice regents, and under his authority. But we said in our parents, I don't like the middle. I want to be on the top. And we pushed God away. We took life into our own hands. We said, I want to do my own thing. And in that moment, everything broke. Governments broke. Creation fell. Our own hearts fell like in God's image, a mirror into a thousand pieces. There's still reflections there, but it's so broken. Everything broke, and thus there was sickness and suffering and disease and disasters and death touches everything. But listen, here's the point. We do not die because of God. We die because of sin, our sin. Did these Galileans die because they were worse sinners? Did these Jerusalem people die because they were more guilty? No. They died because we live in a world we broke where people do evil things and disasters happen. Now, God gets blamed for a lot of things. He does. It made me think of a riff I heard from an African-American brother a couple years ago. Uh, He said, don't blame God. 
If you're not as smart as you would like to be or as handsome or beautiful, don't blame God if you're short or tall or thin or fat. Don't blame God if you have flat feet, thinning hairs, or ears that stick out too much. God is not to blame for those things. Blame your parents. <laughs> or if you must, your grandfather on your mother's side. That's where the baldness comes from. Don't blame God. God is not to blame if you suffer the consequences of another sin. Children of divorce, children of workaholics, children of the me generation are angry, abused children, battered wives, and victims of rape must ask, could God have stopped that? Yes, I believe he could have. Then why didn't he? Because he gave us the kind of world we want to live in. It is a world where people can touch us to make us feel good or people touch us to cause great pain. He made us free beings in a world of free beings. God is not to blame when people choose to abuse that freedom. The people who commit horrible crimes are to blame for the pain and suffering they cause their victims and their families. And those who commit such crimes will pay for it. On the day they stand before the final judge of the universe, they will be held to the account for the pain that they have inflicted. But criminals are not the only ones to blame. The truth is, we're all to blame. We have protectively fenced ourselves in, ignoring the moral and social ills that spawn such violence. Then we too are to blame when we are not willing to pay for, be supportive of, or involved in an educational system for all children, a system that works to teach something more than simply the ABCs or how to have a great career or how to make lots of money. Then we're all to blame. Don't blame God for accidents. God didn't cause them. And he doesn't interfere to stop them either. Accidents come with the territory of freedom. Don't blame God for cancer, diabetes, AIDS, malformed babies, or any other disease or malady that afflicts mankind. They weren't a part of God's created order. They came along with humankind's fall. God hates them as much as we do. God works alongside us to defeat them. On occasion, he chooses to reveal his power through a healing miracle, but those are always the exception and never the rule. A ray of hope for the hopeless, a promise of healing to come for all people. But don't blame God. No. Jesus says, no, I tell you, they are not to blame. The reason hard things and tragedies and evil things happen in our world is because we live in a broken, fallen world. And unless we repent, we too will all perish. Repent. Repent is one of Jesus' favorite words. He began his preaching ministry with that word in Matthew and Mark. Often when we hear repent because it's such a church word, we often think it's you know, just telling God and everyone else how bad we are. And there is an element of that. But I often think we think, well, when, when, when you're telling me that I need to repent, it means a pound of guilt plus a cup of tears is the recipe for repentance. No. Maybe a part. But repentance is not primarily concerned with the past. Repentance is concerned with the future. Repentance comes from the Greek word which means to change your mind, to align with God's ideas, to agree with God's purposes. So it's about a mental discipline of constantly aligning ourselves with what we know the truth is as God has told us. It's always about adjustment. 
It's always about navigating. It's about thinking, am I thinking this way? Does it fall into place with how God uh, has revealed His will and how He runs the world? So we're always thinking through. That's why Martin Luther said that repentance, the Christian life is repentance from beginning to end. It's not a one-time act. It's a once-an-hour act. We're always aligning. And specifically, when Jesus uses the word repentance, often in contexts like this, that he's talking about two things, death or eternal life, death. Repentance means we adjust our thinking to live with the most Reveal truth and experience truth in human history. Do you know what it is? Death. The truest thing I could say to you this morning, existentially and revealed, is that you are dying. You're with me, right? The statistics are pretty good. <laughs> Repent means to change the way you think because you know you're going to die. If you forget that you're dying, even for a few days, your imaginations become distorted and your priority list gets inflated. It's why in the ancient monasteries, the architects used to lay out the grounds and they'd have you sleeping in a bunk house over here, and then over here is where you'd go to chapel and mess hall and eat, and guess what was in the middle that they had to walk past three times a day? Cemetery. You'd get up, there's my dead monks, three times a day, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. But it's not just that we're dying. It's that what happens after death. Death is not the end. Death is a transition point into a new life. And the other piece of repentance, according to Jesus, is to not only remember we're dying, but to remember we will live forever, that this is not our home. Wendell Berry said, in order for a place to feel like home, there must be some prospect of staying there. You're not staying here. Your life is a grain of sand on the eternal beach. You will live forever. And that too has to invade how you live now. Your home is there and then. And the beauty of the Christian life is it begins to invade the present. And you live a changed and different life. It's why during Lent, Jesus in Matthew 6 said that there's three things we should all be doing in these moments when we reflect on life. In Matthew 6, he said we should pray, we should fast, and we should give alms to the poor. Think about each one of those. Prayer. What's prayer? Prayer to shared life. I mean, God, every breath we take is a gift. And the more breaths that we actually devote to him and talk to him and walk with him and just sit in quiet and listen... We share life with Him. What are we doing? We're experiencing eternity. Lent is a time to open our lives up to the eternal. And think about fasting. I, and then I'll probably step on some toes here, but I'm a little tired of hearing, yeah, I'm going to fast from chocolate, this, this, whatever. Sorry, I'll get letters. I go. But it needs to be, <laughs> it, it needs to be more than that. What is fasting? Fasting is looking in those areas of your life where you're very prone to use that 
practice, that thing, to numb your heart, to help you deal with pain, to help your life not be so boring. So fasting, things that really we turn to when our hearts are empty or when our hearts are hurting. Netflix, food, sexual pleasure, all those small G gods that we turn to and say, if only I could get those, I would be happier, I would be whole, I would be more engaged with life. And as we seek those other things, Jesus gets further and further and further away. So part of what fasting is is to cut out some of those things, even for a time, for 40 days, and say, Jesus, come closer, come closer, come closer, and you fill that time with more time with Him. And the third one, giving alms. Man, talk about experiencing eternity. Do you know how that works? Here's what's true. The moment that we die and enter God's presence, Within five minutes, now I know there's no time in heaven, like five, but within like moments, I know there's no moments. How do we talk about this? (laughs) You are going to have this thought, man, what was I thinking? Why didn't I give more away? Why? Lent is a time that we do something radical and in a spur of the moment, man standing on the corner holding a sign, you just give it all away. Whatever's in your wallet. You do something that says, well, got that moment covered for a while in eternity. Radical. It's an experience of eternity. Give it away. Jesus says, repent. And it gets even more interesting. See, I'm going to defend Jesus here now a little bit for just a moment. Because, you know, these tragedies happen and Jesus says, yeah, but it's not really their fault. We don't think that way. These things happen in a broken world. But the real headline here is we're all going to die. And it comes across as very harsh, like Jesus has a cold heart. Let me explain just one facet here that defends him a little bit. Notice who he's talking to. He's talking to the crowds who have read the headlines. He is not talking to people on whom the towers fell. There are a thousand other places in Scripture and a thousand other places in the gospel where Jesus speaks to the hurting and the broken and the people who've had the towers fall on them, whether a relationship, a disease, a financial issue, the towers fall. He's not talking to those people here. Who's he talking to? He's talking to to people who are not having towers fall on them, but are reading about falling towers. He's talking to people in the trouble-free zone. He's talking to people who are just curious about how life works, not so much because they're in tragedy. They just want to know how life works and how do we interpret headlines. He is not talking to people in trouble. He's talking to people who are interested in how trouble works in life. Let me say it this way. Here's the implication. The most important place in life where we need to be thinking about repentance, agreeing and aligning with God, is when we are in a trouble-free zone. Are you tracking with me? It's when things are good that we need to be repenting. Why? 
Because when things are good, when our kids are going well, when our job's going well, when we have money, when all the things in life are getting what we want, what happens? We get used to those things. Those things become our comfort, and as they become our comfort, they become our meaning and significance. As they become our meaning and significance, they capture the affections of our heart, and before we know it, all we think about is those things, and we lose sight of everything else. And the time to repent is when things are going well. That's when we think about aligning with God. And that's why I think Jesus was a jolt to these people who things were going fairly well for them in life if they're just reading the headlines. And their first poem, aren't us, we're enjoying our morning coffee. We're like little bubbles rising in a pot. Repent. What are you doing? You're going to live forever. How are you living? And then Jesus wants to take it one mile further. He says, no, repent. And then he says, here's the reality and the headline. You will perish. Every person deserves to have a tower fall on them. Now, wait a minute. You, you're not liking that. You're not liking me right now. I'm going to speak, do a little mop up here. Stay with me. I think we'll get to the place of truth. Stay with me. Let me phrase it this way and kind of parallel park into the space, backing up. Let's get there. This way. What does God owe us? What does God owe us? I think the initial answer we want to say is nothing, but I actually want to say no, it's more than nothing. Here we go, track with me. God made everything, he owns everything. We exist our next breath for his purpose, by his decision. He made us, he owns us, he keeps us alive. We are his. We owe him absolute trust, resolute obedience, joyful submission. That's what we owe him. But because he wasn't enough for us, we turned and we walked away. We rejected his authority. We resist his input into our lives so that we can live lives of peace and justice. We resent when he interferes with our life in ways we don't want and then we don't share much of our life with him at all that he's given us. So the fact is, God does owe us something. Because we've turned against him, he owes us justice. We've turned from him. Our sins, the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. Death does not mean just the end of our physical life here. Death ultimately means separation from God, or as Jesus' favorite word to describe death, perishing. If I was writing an edition of the New Testament, I would put the word perishing in italics and bold. Do you know why? Because you'd be amazed at how often Jesus says it, and it would grab our attention like it should. If we do not choose to repent and come back to God, we will perish. And God is just to make that decision. And in the perishing, God will get glory from saving us or he will get glory 
from, per- from our perishing apart from him forever. God owes us justice. We deserve to have a tower fall on us. So stay with me. Jesus is trying to convince us into a truth we don't want to believe. Half of us in the room right now are thinking this. Yeah, but God loves me. He loves me. He's given everything for me. I can't be that bad. And the other half of the room, I am a horrible person. I am a worm. I deserve nothing from God. How could he ever love me? And do you know what's in the middle? Pulling those errors into truth is a man with his arms out on a cross saying, I'm the Galilean that Pilate will kill. I'm the one who's had the eternal tower of justice fall on me for every one of your sins and all the sins of the world. It's fallen on me. Therefore, it doesn't have to fall on you and you won't perish. You will live with my father forever. His life will become yours, your life in his. You will be saved. It's Jesus bringing that together. We'll have towers fall on us in life huge and significant losses. But because Jesus had the eternal tower fall on him, none of those towers that fall on us now will be the end of us or the last word of our life. Jesus saves. What does Jesus have to say to us in tragedy? He has the guts and the severe mercy to question our future to call us to repentance. Remember that funeral I talked about earlier? Will Williman, that pastor who talked about the Greyhound bus taking out people at the procession to the graveside. When it was done, he was riding home with his wife. He was so angry. That preacher was manipulative. That preacher was so insensitive to the family. That preacher, that was disgusting. And Will Williman's wife said, it was. It was disgusting. It was manipulative. And the worst thing about it, it's true. I'm going to come right at it. What are you building your life on? What? Your looks? I'm sorry. You're losing them. Your career? Your family, I'm sorry, they're growing up. What are you building your life on? Those things are just castles, sand castles on the beach, and I'm telling you, a wave is coming. We're building nests in the trees when he's a hurricane. Build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ and live. What are you building on? Repent. We're going to sing a song in a moment. I have one more thing to read. We began with poetry. We're going to end with poetry. But as we sing this song in a moment, I'm going to just call this an altar 
And if there's anything you want to come and give to God, if there's anything you want to repent for, if there's just anything you need to get right with him, you can do it where you sit, of course. If you want to really seal the deal, if you want to like make it public, come down. This is the area of repentance today. This is from one of my favorite books called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl by N.D. Wilson. You have nothing in and of yourself. You and I are made of clay and spit. Any holiness of ours is polluted beyond our petty comprehension. I have nothing to offer him but a bent neck, a neck he has helped me bend. I have nothing to offer him but filth, and he has taken it and exchanged it for blood like wine and his own body broken like bread. Do you resent this world? Do you hate him for cancer, for car wrecks, and for the sudden shocking sleep of the young? Do you hate him for those waves that break too high for those hours when far more than 6,000 die? Do you resent your story, your height, your baldness, your itchy feet, your unstable lower intestine, the forest fire sunsets and your own mortality? Buy cream for your wrinkles. Whiten your teeth. Have doctors staple back your scalp until you die and decompose and only the staples remember you. <laughs> go to him or go to hell. Those are the only two choices because hell will be wherever he is not. Lord, you know our hearts. You know those areas where we are prone. Show us, Lord, as you did the crowd, as you continue to show the crowds today, you are the living bread. You are the living water. You are the good shepherd. You are the resurrection and the life. Lord, we come running, running again to you. You are our living hope. You are our reason. We come to you in Jesus' name, amen.